Welcome to Connectify Conversations. My name is Devin Simonson, and I'm the CMO at Connectify. Our mission is to share the experience, expertise, and insights from gaming industry leaders that comes from years navigating the complexities and impact of compliance. On this episode, we have our special guest, former Chief Compliance Officer at Wager, Lauren Lemmer. Lauren Lemmer, I'm Chief Compliance Officer and Head of Operations at Wager, which is an upstart operator based out of Tennessee. Um, and I'm here to talk about my experiences and anything else I can opine on uh, relating to my role in this industry. And the Business Development Director at Connectify, Sham Topshi. I'm Sean Topshi. I'm the Director of Business Development for Connectify. And uh, yeah, I'm here as well to uh, pick Lauren's brain and, and see what her you know, career path has been like transitioning from, from banking to gaming and, and what the world of compliance looks like, especially in a, a startup company. Thanks for joining us today. And remember to like and subscribe to the podcast. You can also learn more anytime at connectify.com. That's K-I-N-E-C-T-I-F-Y dot com. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So as the chief compliance officer at Wager, what can you tell us about Wager? Yeah, so Wager started, uh, went live over a year ago in Tennessee. And so what Wager is and how it's different from what your traditional sports book is, is it's essentially P2P. So instead of betting against the house, we actually pair you up with other individuals taking the other side of the bet. So we're unique in that you know, just looking at from a sports book perspective, we're agnostic to the outcome of an event. We're simply matching people. So you know, from a revenue recognition standpoint, we recognize revenue from, you know, taking some juice off of the transaction itself, but, you know, we're agnostic to how a game actually ends. But what makes Wager particularly fun is, you know, obviously there's this P2P element where you're betting against an individual, um, but you also have all sorts of social features where you can kind of talk trash on the app, you know, respond and see what your bets, uh, your friends are betting on. There's a shared leaderboard. So you can see where you rank stack against, you know, maybe your group of friends or globally on the app. So really, you know, not just from a P2P perspective, the angle that Wager has, and I think the value proposition it provides is it's a social sports book. And um, to date, really nothing like that exists on the market. And so that's the unique thing that Wager's building in, in right now live in Tennessee, but rapidly expanding into other markets soon. Like many others, I never saw myself ending up in the compliance industry. How did you get so lucky? <laughs> yeah, well, I can't say when I was a little girl, <laughs> I wanted to be a compliance officer. But cool. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it's been an interesting path. And I think it's it's really great to have the opportunity to do a lot of different things and kind of jump ladders, so to speak, into different industries. But when I had graduated from college, it was 2010. And so the the economy wasn't great. Um, we were still kind of in that financial crisis, really like starting to come out of it. And so um, I had a few different job offers when I graduated from college at like, you know, Deloitte and Touche or Citibank, but the FDIC presented itself. And it was a really unique time, I think, to have been a bank examiner and to have grown up in the financial institution world because banks were still a mess. So, you know, some of my weekends were spent 
going to banks and closing them down and passing the keys off to another bank that may have been acquiring them. Um, you know, and, lo- and certainly looking at things from a safety and soundness perspective. So the qual- evaluating the quality of loan portfolios was the primary thing I was doing. So, so really, you know, in my banking experience, I wasn't even a compliance person because at the FDIC, there's a few different verticals. One is that risk, safety, and soundness element. And then there's others relating to consumer protection, which is really more like compliance, compliance. Um, but something that was really cool about what I got to do at the FDIC as the bank and economic conditions began to recover, we were able to shift our focus away from looking at loan portfolios and loan quality um, into BSA and AML. And so it gave me this really unique opportunity to start diving into different financial institutions relative to their risk profiles. I was based in California. So at that time, a lot of banks were starting to contemplate getting into cannabis, for example. And so that was kind of like this emerging risk area. Um, But really, yeah, started to kind of get into the BSA and AML world. Um, And so part of that um, and some of my highlights of my career at the FDIC was I would start to work on putting together enforcement actions for banks. So banks that needed some help and needed kind of a a blueprint of how to remediate any sort of AML deficiencies we'd identified, I'd be part of that work. And then it translated into me starting to get hired by banks who were going through enforcement actions. So kind of flipping to the other side of the table from being kind of the enforcer to, you know, quarterbacking kind of big remediation um, initiatives. So a lot of my career, if I were to put it into like one word was, is, was being a fixer. So you know, I'd, I'd be hired to fix, you know, build, fix, rinse, lather, repeat. And it was just, you know, a great experience. And, uh, you know, I got to, I got the opportunity to learn a lot of different things and, and build planes while fly, flying them and um, working in a pretty dynamic environment. Um, then, of course, that led into Wager, which, um, you know, as you, as you know, Wager is not a bank. They are almost the opposite of that. They're a mobile sports book operator, like I mentioned earlier. So very different on the surface, but as you all know, as compliance professionals, casinos, gambling entities, they really have a lot of the same rules of engagement as banks, particularly when it comes to the Bank Secrecy Act. So um, when that opportunity presented itself, it was really exciting to me because at that point, Wager is not had not yet launched. It had not even gotten its first gaming license yet. So I viewed that opportunity to not be a fixer, but actually builder. Um, so I took all of the lessons I had learned from my career at that point, you know, good things, bad things, you know, obviously I've made mistakes along the way. I've seen other people make mistakes. And so being able to take all of those experiences and applying them to building a compliance program from the ground up at wager, you know, being responsible gaming plans, AML programs, compliance policies, internal controls, just everything, um, was kind of the culmination of everything I had learned from my banking days. So that's how I ended up in gaming. And I, I guess, spoiler alert, I'm never going back to banking, but gaming <laughs> is like the most fun industry. It's a very small world that in gaming. And so, um, it's really great to be able to collaborate with partners like you all and talk through, you know, topics like I know we'll end up talking about today, but um, yeah, gaming's just great. It's the wild west right now. You know, I've, I've only ever been in gaming and at this point I, I, I can't ever see myself leaving. I also yeah. grew up in Vegas around it, have always been fascinated by it. 
I mean, geez, we were like hosting poker tournaments at people's houses when we were like 12, 13 years old. <laughs> yeah. Got a little out of control during high school, but we reeled it back in once we became adults. It's funny how many people just kind of seem to stumble into it, right? Like nobody, especially gaming compliance in particular, right? Nobody expects to get into it. I didn't even know it existed, you know, coming out of college. I, I was doing an internship at Caesars for my degree in accounting, which was horrendous. I'd never done accounting a day in my life since since graduating, and I don't plan to. But yes, yeah, Caesars had this brand new Title 31 department at the time, and um, it just sounded so interesting, this idea of, you know, combating money laundering. And I've just kind of, you know, I've been hooked ever since. I, you know, Barbara allowed me to come on board before I even fully graduated, worked with my schedule until graduation, and uh, it was kind of off to the races from there. What would you say are the major differences between working at a large organization versus a startup? Mm -hmm. I would imagine that there are distinct differences between the two. Yeah, so I'd say the biggest difference, I think, above anything else is really the speed in which things need to be done. So in a startup, things are incredibly dynamic. They're changing all of the time. You know, you can find yourself in positions where the business model may need to take a pivot or whatever the case is. And so you know, from a compliance perspective, building a program is really important, but building a program that can be sustainable and scalable is even more important. So, you know, I think that when you're working in a startup, particularly in a compliance vertical, it's really important to really see yourself as a seatbelt so that you can enable the business to move very quickly and safely, um, which is a little bit different than when you're working in an established institution where, you know, maybe it feels a little bit more like maintenance mode or you're kind of nipping and tucking some of the programs um, where, you know, you're really just kind of iterating on something that exists. But in a startup and what I think makes working at a startup so fun is oftentimes nothing exists. And then on top of that, you've got to move very quickly. So you have to really learn how to prioritize and kind of know what fires you put out first knowing that there's fires everywhere. And so you just kind of have to be okay with knowing what balls in the air are glass and which ones are plastic. So, um, because you're gonna drop some balls, but um, I think that's the biggest difference. It's it's really the speed in which things need to happen. There's a need to learn on the fly and pivot quickly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and you've gotta be very confident in assessing risks at a very, very quickly because uh, and I think that's something that really comes with experience, honestly, and maybe it's the experience that, you know, I've worked for some very high risk financial institutions. So I kind of know like what worst case looks like. And so as things arise from a risk perspective, you kind of have to like weigh it and just say, eh, can I live with maybe that this, you know, puck slipping past the goalie? Like, all right, I will. Or which one's like kind of a no go. Um, so, yeah, definitely a very important thing, I think, and component of, of being in charge of compliance at a startup. What has your experience been with dealing with different types of relationships in different industries between regulators, like gaming versus banking? Yeah, I think about that all the time because it's a really important component of my job, you know, any compliance professional's job in gaming, particularly, a lot of that time is spent establishing and maintaining those relationships with regulators. So I, I spend a good amount of my time uh, interacting with them. And it's always such a pleasure because those I think are such collaborative relationships, which is a little different. I mean, I'm a former banking re regulator, but I can honestly say that the relationship between a banking regulator and a bank is, I think a little bit more arm's length than what I've experienced with the gaming regulators. 
and I mean that, you know, respectfully, respectfully on both sides of it. Um, obviously, when it comes to banking regulators, you're you're dealing with a lot of nuances. You've got federal regulations, you've got, you know, state, you know, consumer protections, all sorts of things. With the state gaming regulators, it's it's more focused and regionalized. And I find that when you're having conversations with regulators on the gaming side, it's much more a conversation. And I think um, what I think is very exciting about sports betting, particularly right now, especially as a lot of states are starting to put pen to paper on, you know, legislation or rules as they're starting to legalize gaming. So I'm talking about like brand new spanking markets versus the established ones like Jersey or Colorado is that opportunity to provide public comment on rules as they're being drafted. Um, So, I mean, I think like by and large, just the difference between like that appetite for conversation and input between operators, suppliers and regulators, it's just much more, you know, I think open and honest in those conversations. So I'd say that that's probably the biggest difference, but um, certainly I think having the conversations with regulators regularly is, is really key and is part of what makes that relationship collaborative and fruitful ultimately. Frankly, especially with some of these new jurisdictions, right? The the regulators to an extent are are still figuring it out too, yeah. right? Like Tennessee, for example, this is this is a pretty brand new space for them to be working in. So um, I've heard from multiple companies now and 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 it's it's great that they are so open to that collaboration and that conversation because you know, as as an industry, we do kind of have to maneuver it together and figure it out together to kind of get to the the best point where you are protecting the consumer, protecting the industry, and just you know making it a a great experience so it's a successful rollout. You know, within whatever state that it's currently rolling out in. Oh, absolutely. And you know, when it comes to the states, like a a big part of their economic income is coming through gaming, and so there's this mutual benefit to everyone being successful. And so ten, I'm glad you mentioned Tennessee, Sean, because Tennessee is obviously who I deal with most directly in my role at Wager. And they are absolutely, I think, just the poster child of what it means to be an effective regulator. And, you know, I appreciate the opportunities that they give operators to provide input on, you know, any changes they're contemplating or um, you know, just kind of understanding how things can be done smarter, not harder. And so really, you know, all of those things I think are really important to making the industry move forward because you're right, like you're turning a huge ship otherwise. And so sometimes there can be an inadvertent, you know, little tiny change in a requirement could actually translate to a very expensive tech change all of a sudden or whatever the case is. And so mm-hmm. my experience, Tennessee in particular, but, you know, in all of the gaming regulators I've interacted with, seem to be mindful of that and understanding, um, you know, what makes sense, um, what still takes care of the spirit of whatever that requirement is, especially when it comes to protecting players and what's, you know, a way that makes sense to implement those um, versus requiring, you know, a certain way, let the operators figure out what ultimately is best for them to, to meet that requirement. Yeah, it's it's been it's been really interesting seeing seeing that dynamic. I, I I do think it's changing a bit, but yeah, you know, when I was with Caesars at U, it felt like there was at least five audits open at all times, right? And then I I go from Caesars to Morongo, 
um, which is a pretty sizable, you know, tribal casino in Southern California. It's like 3,800 machines, I think like 48 tables. Like they do some significant volume and I get there and they've never had a BSA examination, you know, and they've been open at that point for, for I think over 10 years. Go figure, you know, I'm, I'm a lucky duck and uh, a few months after being there, we get our first examination. But uh, fortunately things went well there. But now I'm, I'm starting to see where, uh, you know, even some of the smaller players are, are starting to get attention from the IRS. And, and I think post COVID, the IRS has had uh, a pretty big hiring push. So um, one of the last gigs I was on before before I came to Connectify, it was a small little, I think like 350 slot machine, seven table casino going under a BSA examination. And I've heard more and more examples of that now. So. I think that era of it just being, you know, the MGMs and, and Caesars of the world uh, getting looked at is is over and, and they're trying to spread that net more across, you know, all all size of enterprises with within the casino industry. And so I'll be curious to see, um, you know, once those examinations start hitting iGaming as well, because that's it's a, it, it's a different ball game, but also from a regulator standpoint, gaming has been around for a long time. So I, I imagine they're going to be expecting us to be, to be pretty polished if, you know, as operators. What would you say are the best practices for compliance groups when approaching the cost centers of their organization? How would you say we can make it to the table? Like HR or something? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Probably. Yeah. Uh, no, you know, there's a few things that I think are helpful. So one of the things that is really important is that compliance always has a seat at the table and that's any table. So whether that's having a formal board committee, you know, formally chartered board committee, you know, that's obviously important or just having direct exposure to, you know, with this chief executive officer and always knowing from a strategic standpoint, what are the, the long-term plans for the organization? That's important because when you know and understand that early on, you can start to opine and provide any sort of initial feedback or say, hey, 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 let's chill out on that. Let's let's, you know, take this back, do a mini risk assessment, see what we're looking at, you know, whatever the case is. But I do find when you're having those conversations early and often, it's much better than oh, wait, I just heard that they're about to roll out this feature and I haven't even looked at this. I'm pretty sure this isn't legal. Like it's way easier to have those conversations earlier on. And so um, I've been really lucky at Wager because that's been something that's been prioritized from from very early on. And so I, I know I have a seat at that table and I have a very loud voice at that table. Um, and so I have that opportunity to, you know, rather than say no, I can say yes, but... And then we can have that conversation from there. And so I, I find that people are more receptive to that. So I think from a broad perspective, that's a really important. In terms of being viewed as a cost center that provides value, since compliance is really just a cost center, I do find tremendous value in the risk assessment process. And so you all know that risk assessments are key and core to you know what we do from a compliance standpoint and understanding how we prioritize what control measures we want to put in to mitigate the risk and keep our risk profile to a manageable level. So obviously from that perspective, very important. But what I think that risk assessments are really in the way that I approach them is that they're they're just a story. It's a story of the organization. It's a story of what they've done, what they look like right now to what are the long-term plans. And so 
if it's approached that way, I think that there's a lot of business insights that can be drawn from that. So um, specifically, you know, some of the key components to a risk assessment are, you know, what's your customer profile look like from a portfolio perspective? What are your geographic locations? Um, you know, in the wager example, obviously we're only in Tennessee, but what's interesting is to know where are players based? Is it a bunch of tourists going into Nashville for a bachelorette party? Or is it, you know, a bunch of college students at University of Tennessee? Um, and then you also have kind of payment risks, kind of your more you know, traditional risks that you save at payment risks, um, you know, product offerings, you know, what kind of wagering types do you offer? Um, but what I think is really important, and and I think it's important to share as a compliance officer writing risk assessment with your business partners who sit on the commercial side is providing those insights from the risk assessment. And so, um, I think the most valuable thing is information about our players. Uh, and I mean that from a macro perspective. Um, you know, different learnings. And I'm, I'm kind of just sharing some information that, that we've learned from our player base at Wager is, you know, we've always kind of focused on Nashville, for example. Nashville's a big city in Tennessee. But guess what? If you actually look at our data and the customers we have, we have a lot of players outside Nashville. So what does that tell, you know, me from a risk perspective? Not a lot. I mean, somebody who's in Nashville is not that in- different to me than somebody who's in Chattanooga. But from a commercial perspective, it provides some insights as to, you know, where do we deploy our marketing budget? Maybe, maybe we've kind of like exhausted Nashville. Maybe, maybe people in Memphis want some love. So let's start going to Memphis and, you know, marketing to them. They seem to like our product or whatever the case is. And so, you know, I think it's important that compliance professionals are proud of their work, um, but they don't just keep it to their vertical. I think it's important to do dog and pony shows internally and show them, you know, show your colleagues within your organization, like, here's what we we found, you know, here's what we're learning. Um, here's where we think we're going. And, you know, here's where that data that we have right now may inform how we get where we're going. Um, so I find that's a really effective way to kind of cross, cross the line, so to speak, from being kind of just an annoying cost center to really providing value. And I think that really, you know, that that dog and pony show aspect that you're talking about, I think that's really important in in having that communication and collaboration. So you do have that seat at the table. So you're recognized as a voice in the organization. I mean, in in brick and mortar, that's that's definitely a, a challenge that happens often is is having an active seat at the table. Um, and, you know, you're getting blindsided by products being rolled out. And, and, and instead of you know, being a seatbelt, now you're more of a, a roll cage because they just put in some kind of, you know, <laughs> cashless wagering at the tables and you have no one patron information, just like a, you know, four digits of a debit card number and the time that they did it in the table that they did it at. Yeah. Um, but it, it's it's fortunate that in, in iGaming, I think that you've gotten, you know, you have these dedicated product teams now also, there seems to be so much more open collaboration um, with with compliance where that's fortunately that's not as much of an issue so you can get ahead of it and and be you know a business enabler and and not be putting up you know those roadblocks all the time yeah yeah you're absolutely right and and you nailed it like i think a lot of times risk assessments are viewed as this like check check the box exercise of like oh, i gotta do it all right let me do it real quick and then yeah it does sit on a shelf once it gets you know board approval whatever the case is um 
back in my bank examination days, I was taught very early on from, you know, one of my mentors was first thing you do when you get into a bank for a bank examination, other than find the break room for the free coffee is to read the risk assessment, you know, and that was even when I'm just looking at loans, like not even looking at any of the AML um, information, but because the risk assessment is kind of the best way to get a snapshot of what the institution is up to. Um, and so I've always just viewed it that way. And um, I think it's been reinforced throughout my career of just kind of how important it is and how helpful it is when you do it right. And you, you do that dog and pony show, you know, and you socialize it to as many people in an organization as you can so that they all are kind of thinking the same thing, understand at least those hot you know, topics. So like you mentioned, you, you can make sure that your colleagues outside of the compliance organization are aware of like, what are the things that Lauren might yell at me about if I don't mention to her like early. And so I, you know, I'd much rather be in a situation where somebody brings something to me and, you know, I ask a few questions and say, uh, you know, ultimately this is a business decision, you know, have fun. Um, I'd much rather be in that position than okay, tell me what happened, who knew what, when, where, you know, sort of thing. So um, I think to the extent that you just are always talking about it in the open, it's important. So I think the risk assessment is kind of the best way to do that. It gives you like an actual artifact to, you know, tell people like, here, here's our story. Here's where we sit. Do we have our seatbelts on or not, right? Right. Seatbelts are important. <laughs> that being said, you certainly need good people for your compliance team. What are your thoughts on finding candidates when it seems a lot harder and harder to get someone that you need, especially in such a niche labor shortage? Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. Unemployment is really low right now, which is good. Um, but it does it does present some interesting opportunities, particularly for gaming compliance professionals. So, you know, sports book, mobile sports books, it's still this, you know, blossoming industry. And so not a lot of folks have had direct experience working in compliance um, for a sportsbook operator. And so I'm speaking from that perspective because I know, Sean, like you mentioned, gaming has been around for a long time. But the digital sportsbook era is, is very new still. It's new for a lot of states. And so for folks who have had any experience in that world, they are very, very sought after, um, especially when you look at different players that are starting to get into space from an operator perspective, suppliers even too, since they're kind of swimming in the same pool, they've got kind of, they've got to speak that language as well and establish those regulatory relationships. So I think from that perspective, um, you know, in terms of making sure you're keeping people um, and you, cause you don't want to lose that talent that you have to other operators, it's really important. Um, and, and this is really just a broad leadership um approach that I take is keep your people happy, give them projects, um, keep them engaged, keep them loyal to you and the organization, and they won't look outside. I think that's, you know, very key. And so I, you know, my career has been made up of circumstances in which people have given me those opportunities and I've forever been loyal to, to them and they've always kept me happy in those organizations. And so that's generally how I manage and lead within my organization. But then from a hiring perspective, there's this amazing pool of talent out there of people who have worked in compliance, maybe in banking, and 
you know, it's not hard to find people who are into sports. It's not hard to find people who are into betting. So when you mix that together with anyone from a compliance background, even in traditional banking, they're also very attractive um, to a sports book. And so that's a similar path, obviously, like I took. Um, and then, you know, one of the one of my colleagues at Wager who works in the compliance team, he took a very similar path. And, you know, I, I got to say it translates great. Um, and he's, you know, a wonderful employee and teammate and colleague. And it's because that background he has, but it's in large part because the, uh, the labor market is in a place that people, you know, have options and they're not afraid to look around. So, you know, it's great for hiring, scary to keep talent, but, um, you know, you kind of just have to manage through that and, and make sure you keep your people happy and, you know, and similarly make sure you support them if they find another opportunity that might, you know, lead them to a path that they want to be on. I really like how how this, you know, this, this introduction of iGaming online sports betting has has kind of leveled the playing field uh, for, for hiring and, and for somebody looking for a job. I, I feel like as a as a compliance person, you have more power than you've ever had. I mean, what, having come up come up through the industry, right? Compliance probably not the best paying job you've ever seen. Um, you know, I wasn't signing massive contracts at at Caesars Entertainment, but now that you're, you know, in this online space where you don't have to be even in the same jurisdiction, right? You're working mm-hmm. for Wager in Tennessee, and you're in you're in Texas. Yeah. You know, it doesn't matter whether the startups in Tennessee or New Jersey or Vegas or you know Oklahoma, if and when they you know, approve it, you can, you can get talent from anywhere now if, if you have that remote work environment. So, so the competition field is so much larger now. So those, even those rural, you know, brick and mortars they have online, they're not facing those same challenges anymore. If they offer good pay, good benefits, great opportunities, you know, they can, they can get the same level of talent that, uh, you know, that a bet MGM or a points bet or, or a FanDuel can get as well. And I, I just like the power that's put into the hands of, you know, the employee, not, not just the employer as well as, you know, we can, you can demand a little better pay now too, which, which isn't a bad thing in this, you know, ever, ever expanding inflation that we seem to have right now. With these hiring challenges, mm-hmm. especially for gaming startups, mm-hmm. what do you see companies doing in order to keep things going? Yeah, I, I do foresee a lot of consolidation in the business. So, you know, obviously working in a highly regulated space, you know, presents challenges, but it's also a really expensive business to be in from an operator perspective. So I'm starting to see just, you know, from my friends in the industry who had started sports books. And so really were kind of B2C, you know, they were true sports books. Some of them I'm starting to see, you know, obviously get acquired or move to more B2B. And so they're moving more the supplier route or, you know, making their tech something that's licensable by operating sports books. And, you know, obviously I know you're all so plugged into books and how, you know, notorious the marketing spend has been recently. It's just this, you know, it's been this just crazy battle of just unsustainable marketing spend. Um, so the little guys, are not going to be able to compete with that. And, you know, of course that marketing spend, like I mentioned is unsustainable. So at some point that that will dry up, but um, even still to, to capture the eyeballs or, you know, fingertips of those mobile sports betters, you know, take some coins. So, uh, you know, I'm, it'll be interesting to see how the startups navigate through, through that. I mean, obviously um, a lot of startups have benefited from an environment where it's been, 
I wouldn't say easy to raise money, but it's not that way anymore. It's very hard to raise money right now in this climate. So it might make some uh, sports books look, you know, differently at their business model and see kind of what what makes the most sense long term for their success. Depending on the jurisdiction you're trying to get into now, it's it's almost impossible for some startups. I mean, you're oh, talking yeah. about trying to go into an in Illinois. I think the online only license is twenty million dollars. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're basically yeah, ensuring there's no, yeah, yeah. ensuring there's no startup that gets into it. So, mm-hmm. you know, the unfortunately in some markets, the 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 regulation or the requirements is is pushing towards that consolidation, which. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I personally like to see that competition, but it does seem to be naturally the way things will go. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, definitely. Um, yeah, and it's too bad because it does, you know, change the level of innovation, perhaps. Um, I am starting to see some states, and, and you're all familiar with it too, but Maryland is a really great example of Maryland, I think, has really made a concerted effort to expand the sports book operator, you know, pool. And so obviously they're not live yet. I think they've just moved into accepting applications, but they they have a really high cap on sportsbook operator licenses that they'll hand out, which is great, as opposed to like the examples, of, like you mentioned, Sean, where it's like, well, yeah, de facto, it's only going to be the big guys who get a license in certain states. Um, but Maryland has actually really uh, made a point to enable access to what has dr- traditionally been a very expensive market to lower income, you know, equity holders, you know, women and minority owned sports books. And so I think that's really great. And I think that allows for, like I said, innovation in products that may not be out there right now. And, you know, wager is something like that. I mean, wager, um, you know, one of the founders is a Venezuelan immigrant, first generation Venezuelan immigrant. The other founder is a woman. And, you know, think about um, how unique that is in our market. And, you know, more importantly, what that does from a player perspective, it allows them to have options that are not otherwise out there on, you know, kind of the primary books. So do you see consolidation happening largely for the purposes of player acquisition or absorbing the uniqueness of a particular operator? I think it's both. That's a great question. Um, I think customer data and information on players is highly, highly valuable. And I, and I think we see that because, we're starting to see, you know, we've seen the operators spend tons of money to acquire customers. And what does that give them? Data on those customers. So they start to know exactly how Joe likes to bet and what teams he likes to bet on or whatever the case is. And so when it comes to customer data, I think that's truly an asset that can sit on the balance sheet in terms of just having the insight on, you know, just player behaviors. So to your point in question, Ben, I think that the customer acquisition piece is a really big part of it. Um, and I do think secondarily, I think that the tech that is being built is also very attractive. So a lot of, um, you know, a lot of books are on kind of the primary, like, you know, four or five sports betting platforms, you know, like you got the Canby, you got the SB tech, which I know has been acquired since, but you know, those examples. Mm-hmm. And so I've noticed a lot of startups are building their home homegrown tech, which I think is really cool. Um, you know, obviously that's a harder path to take because you're starting from scratch, but what does that do? That also gives the tech to sit on your balance sheet as well. And that's your tech that you can patent or whatever the case is. And so I think that, um, you know, those are really two big components that would drive for M&As of the, probably the smaller, 
um, operators. Um, so that's what I what I see being the drivers there. I'm I'm curious what what your take is on you know you've got all of your your sports betting entities, but but wager a little bit is is unique, like you said, in in that peer to peer. And then you you know you've got this idea of betting exchange where where betting exchanges are just you know they're taking that rake and allowing players to wager against each other. What do you feel like the the growth is going to be for for the betting exchanges? How successful do you think that's going to be? Because that you know as as a better, um, you know we we get to keep more of our money that way. And and I say that as someone who who does a lot of sports wagering, but. Um, having seeing it having a hard time kind of really cracking into the market. Um, I'm curious what your thoughts are on that and what you think the path is going to be. Yeah, exchange wagering. I know there have been a few different kind of failed experiments before of different you know organizations who have who have tried that out. What I think is different this time in this environment is we're starting to see people who are not kind of the traditional sports better archetypes get into betting. And you know, take me for example. I mean, I'm a 34 year old mother of three guess what i like to do i like to bet on sports like and that's not you know that's not i think what is typically been Mm -hmm. the customer and i think we're starting to see more you know people get into sports betting that have been involved before so we're starting to see more women we're starting to see more ethnic groups that maybe haven't been pulled into the conversation or the the market before and so I think that exchange wagering and, you know, wagers um, products specifically, it's a really great way to break into sports betting. And it kind of brings this kind of communal component into betting um, versus like the adversarial, like betting against the house, which, you know, I, I personally like betting against the house. I think it's kind of fun to like bet against this like nameless entity, but um, it's also fun to like bet against your buddy and, you know, be able to, tangibly talk crap to them too. So I think that, you know, you know, we have different betters coming into the space. Um, we have younger betters, you know, you're, you're talking about people who had grown up on the internet and, you know, lived through COVID and, you know, learned how to interact, you know, solely with people through the internet, you know, all of those things. And so I think it's just ripening the market for, you know, this might be the time for exchange wagering to actually take off in a way that, that it's here to stay. I, I really like what you said about, you know, different, you're seeing different dem- demographics coming into betting as well. Um, mm-hmm. You know, much larger population of females betting, but yeah, also ethnic groups. And there's, there's starting to be companies out there who are recognizing that, you know, maybe not even directly in gaming. Like I think sleeper, the, the fantasy app, they kind of targeted that female population and they've done really well like that. And now you've got companies like, um, like Hefebet and, and fifth street gaming where they're, they're targeting that Latino population, which is, you know, it's it's now a very massive population within the United States. And I feel like so much of sports betting had been geared towards, you know, football season and, you know, like the Super Bowls, obviously the the, the mother of all betting um, days and then maybe March Madness. But, you know, for these other ethnic groups, there's there's so many other sports that that we're interested in. So I'm, you know, I'm really excited to see what models like Jefebet do. And now they're, I think, opening up Ojos Locos which is like an like a big El Paso chain, um, j- just to really cater to that market. And I'm curious to see what that starts to look like. Obviously, I'd, I'd expect to see a lot more soccer, a lot more boxing, um, and I think it's you know great timing to start to target that market, especially with the World Cup coming up. Um, but it's it's just going to be fascinating to see that growth and starting to tap in into those other markets. 
Yeah. Oh, definitely. Um, yeah. F1 is another example of like, you know, that's become very, very popular. Um, what's cool what I've seen, at least speaking from like the female perspective, I've seen a lot of really cool and innovative free to play, um, games where you can bet on the outcome of the bachelorette or things like that. You know, obviously you can't legally bet on that. Um, but that's, I think done a lot to get, you know, females in this example, like comfortable with the concept of betting. And, and, you know, it's also a really great customer acquisition funnel, like the free to play and moving them into, you know, real money gaming that involves actual like sports wagering. Um, But I think, you know, going back to innovation, those are the things that I think start to pull in and, and, uh, you know, engage people that just traditionally been forgotten in the conversation altogether. So I know some of my girlfriend's you know, that's been their first experience with betting per se, obviously not with real money, but, you know, paramutual, you know, betting on how many kisses during this episode of The Bachelorette will there be? I mean, literally, you know, you can do that. Um, there's this great company company called Spark It who does that. And um, it's a it's a really great way to kind of educate people and then and then get them confident enough to start actually like betting in a in a traditional platform. I guess I never thought of a bachelorette or Love Island futures betting before. (laughs) (laughs) Shifting topics a bit here, Lauren, but was wondering what are your insights on responsible gaming as well as its connection to crime or the potential victimizing of people Mm -hmm. when it comes to gambling problems? I know this is something that the industry is very largely in tune with and trying to be in front of what are your Mm -hmm. thoughts yeah i mean there's a lot to say about that um i think responsible gaming is a really important topic and you know probably i guess to your earlier question about some of the biggest differences between banking and gaming that's obviously one of them and so the the very established markets like you said in the uk um you know we've seen a really heightened focus on that you know in toronto i know they've had very like strict advertising regulations around problem ga- or to, to kind of combat problem gaming. And so we're starting to see the jurisdictions domestically follow suit. And so, you know, I got this interesting perspective from talking to an industry friend of mine the other day, which was, you know, responsible gaming is starting to move from being a compliance requirement to being like a true, like social, you know, social, uh, you know, point that the gaming organizations need to make of, you know, making sure that they're out there and making sure that they're providing resources to players that, you know, go beyond maybe what the regulations require relating to, you know, self-excluded players and allowing for tools to cool off, tools for deposit limits, all those things, but even more so than offering those options making sure that players know that those options are there, that they're not just buried in a screen. And so, um, you know, I think we've seen a lot of different marketing campaigns around it as well, you know, during football games. I mean, during like primetime football games, I'm seeing, um, you know, the, the Manning brothers talk about it. And I think that's incredible. And what is very important with problem gaming is to make sure that people know that it can become a problem and more importantly, that there are resources out there to, you know, before those even become problems or should they become a problem, you know, what you can do to, to get help. Um, 
And then to your second point, Ben, you're right. There is a lot of overlap in terms of what might look like money laundering may actually actually be problem gambling. You know, that's a slippery slope. And I, I think a lot of it comes down to knowing your customer. So, so knowing, you know, what their behavior should be based off what you know about them versus what you're seeing. And, and even, especially in the age of mobile sports betting, um, people who go to, you know, I'm going to use Tennessee as an example people who go to Tennessee, maybe for a weekend, well, that two days of activity, that's just going to be the honeymoon period because they're in a state that allows for wagering. So, but in a vacuum, that could look like, whoa, somebody's going on a total bender when really they're just having a good time, you know, in Nashville. So, you know, it's a, it's all relative. And I think a lot of it just comes down to looking at things that through different lenses to see if you can understand what it is you're seeing. Um, you know, I think the most important thing is that you're seeing something and you notice something that looks weird and you have then the opportunity to look at it and say, okay, what's potentially going on here? And then what steps do I take next? Um, but yeah, definitely a very important topic. I, I foresee it being more and more important. I think we're starting to see a lot of you know, coalitions and you know, different regulatory bodies working together on that topic specifically. Um, you know, I personally donate to the National, you know, Problem Gaming Corporation just because I think it's important as a gaming professional to support that and the resources that are out there um, to the players in the industry. And yeah, I mean, it's it's important in a, in a big component of what it means to be a compliance officer of a, of a sports book. I really like how you frame that, not just as a, as a compliance issue, but it, it truly is, it's a, a corporate social responsibility yeah. almost is, is, is what it is and what it needs to be for it to be effective, right? It, it can't be just the compliance department pushing it. It's, you know, same with the culture of compliance. It's got to be that the entire organization, you know, making a concerted effort that way, especially so the industry doesn't, you know, start to look predatory almost you know we we, we want to maintain um you know the integrity of the industry and, and we want to maintain that we, we want people to have fun you know we, we don't want it to be something that that negatively impacts their lives so that corporate social responsibility is such a big aspect of it lauren again thank you so much for joining us on connectify conversations thank you thanks for having me any closing thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners you know, I think I think my final like words uh, on the compliance front is to, you know, always be assessing, like always, you know, look internally and externally on what's going on, so that you can always be proactive and uh, in your identification of risks. And part of that is having you know strong AML independent reviewer. And so, uh, you know, I know that's something that you all offer at Connectify, and I think that just is a tremendous value to organizations and. Um, you know, but it really just comes down to like, just always monitor, always know what's going on. Be the one that tells, you know, you always want the friend that tells you that you have stuff in your teeth. That's way better than, you know, a regulator finding something. So always be in a position where you can self-identify. Thank you so much for joining us, Lauren. Thanks guys. Of course, anytime. Thanks again for joining myself, Devin Simonson, Sean Topshi, and our special guest, Lauren Lemmer. Visit Connectify.com. That's K-I-N-E-C-T-I-F-Y.com to learn more about today's topics. You can support our show even more by leaving us a rating wherever you download your podcast or by sharing Connectify conversations with gaming industry leaders like yourself. Until our next conversation, always remember to minimize risk and maximize your efficiency.